Thanks to Acast for hosting and monetizing this podcast. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Let's talk about myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv. And today, I am here with a special conversation episode, and on a Tuesday, no less. I sat down with author and past guest of the show, Jennifer Saint, to talk all about her new novel, Electra, and generally the stories of Clytemnestra, Electra, and Cassandra who are the voices in this book. Lord knows I could talk about Clytemnestra forever, so I was thrilled to not only get an advanced copy of the book to read, but also to have Jenny back on the show. Plus, just to brag that she listened to the podcast while writing the book, and I'm even in the acknowledgements. It's just fun. 
We had so much fun chatting about these characters. They're all so fascinating and brilliant. And I was so excited to hear about how Jenny approached writing their stories, how she handled certain things, what sources she was particularly interested in. What's so fascinating about this story is that it spans the Iliad and the Odyssey to an extent, but then it also is the only story from Greek myth that's featured in plays by all three of the surviving tragedians. And they would have been so many hundreds of years after whatever was Homer. There's so many novels lately about the Trojan War and the women involved in the war itself, and they're great. But I think that it was high time for a novel featuring the darker and yet so sympathetic side of Clytemnestra. And Electra and Cassandra, sure, but I fucking love Clytemnestra and all her righteous anger. And obviously, all the Agamemnon hate. I am always here to shit on Agamemnon, and uh, Jenny was here with me for it. We had such a great conversation, I could talk about this story for hours and hours. So I will uh, just now turn it over to the actual conversation. <laughs> Making sure you pick up a copy of Electra. It's out now in the UK and in North America. And well, enjoy this incredibly fun, interesting and insightful conversation about these myths and how Jenny went about turning them into a novel. This is episode 161, day 42, still planning to kill Agamemnon, a conversation with Ariadne and Electra author Jennifer Saint. Why don't we start with like, so, I mean, I, sorry, this is when I also realize how much I love the conversational part of these things. And then when I talk to authors, I'm like, oh God, this should really be an interview. So that's where I kind of, my brain goes like off into a bunch of different places. So feel free to make very much make this like conversational versus feeling like you're being interviewed. Like, let's just chat about these wonderful people because that's what I love to do, but uh, particularly these characters. So I'm like completely obsessed with the idea of the curse of the house of Atreus and, and all of these women. So I'm, how did you pick them? Like, were you always wanting to do this, this story? Like they, they're so different from Ariadne, I guess. So like, why, why these three ladies? <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's, yeah. And thank you for making it conversational. I think it's so much easier than feeling like, Good. <laughs> like a, a list of questions. Um, yeah. So yeah. why these three women, um, is really like what what you said about it being different to Ariadne that was a really key motivator for me I wanted to immerse myself mm. in a completely different world and I felt with Ariadne the story is so much about gods and magic and that's something that I love about Greek mythology but also when you're into the Trojan War and you're into Clytemnestra's story Electra's story and um, there is so much more um so much more scope for human error and these human decisions and the gods feel like they're kind of a little step back they're a little bit removed so although they've still got this powerful influence on the story this seemed like a really interesting kind of meaty psychological kind of um thing to get my teeth into which um, which was really appealing to do after writing Ariadne um and it kind of became those three because something that I was really 
um, really keen to do, possibly as a result of, you know, reading so much Greek mythology, was to explore the idea of female rage. And that was kind of the starting point. It was about anger. Um, because I think, especially as a woman, you are probably, you know, we're kind of conditioned from a young age to suppress our anger. And it quite often comes out turned against ourselves rather than in, turned externally on the world so to have these three women who turn that anger outwards Cassandra a little bit less so and um, but certainly Clytemnestra and Electra and Cassandra in places that was just that they seemed like such brilliant characters to delve into for that reason to kind of really go somewhere different and somewhere new and somewhere where I didn't feel very confident at the start there was I felt like I had to do so much to put myself inside their heads and um, that was really really challenging and I felt like that's going to make it rewarding that's going to make it a really good story yeah absolutely and, and Electra's so interesting too because well in Clytemnestra like I just love Clytemnestra yes. <laughs> that murderous woman like she's my favorite mm -hmm. but Electra's anger is so interesting because I think if coming from a modern like reading of it and like modern feminism like I get so annoyed with mm -hmm. Electra for where her anger is placed because I'm like I think you should decide with your mother like your mother's making I mean maybe not saying making the right call and like straight up murdering Agamemnon but like Clytemnestra's anger feels so valid and then to have Electra just be so on the other side of it is so interesting and yeah like it must have been really fascinating to to kind of have, get into that mindset too where like you can sort of understand why Electra feels the way she does but also you you definitely understand like why Clytemnestra feels the way she does. Yeah, Clytemnestra is so very righteous in her anger. And um and I suppose kind of coming to it, I I found it so so much simpler to get inside Clytemnestra's head. So much easier. Um and she's also in you know, the, the way that she's treated in the ancient sources. So I quite often come back to the Odyssey. That's quite often just mm. just like a I, there's so much in it obviously um and it's my favorite so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you um so coming to Clytemnestra in the Odyssey even though it's so sort of a, a minor part of it when Odysseus visits the underworld when he speaks to the shade of Agamemnon and Agamemnon is saying um you know my wife is so terrible my wife murdered me fair enough he's annoyed with her I understand that um but and, and you know saying to Odysseus you have so much of a better wife you know your wife is faithful your wife is enduring you're going to go home and you're going to be welcomed a lot more kindly than I was and um and it's that it's always that comparison between women you know women are just always held up against one another and nobody at any point as far as I can see is ever comparing Odysseus and Agamemnon as husbands both of them are terrible Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know why kind of why compare the wives and um, because that's what people always do and with Clytemnestra she's kind of a a monster for the through the, the lens of the patriarchy um she is this kind of nightmare woman who isn't just going to do what she's told she's not going to do what's expected of her and um, she's going to spend that time while Agamemnon's away at war taking control and taking power and she's um she's going to take her revenge on him so I really loved that idea of her as being this kind of this terrifying woman but actually what drives her is is her maternal love it's the fact that she 
she is so devoted to Iphigenia and she's not going to let her daughter go unavenged. So there's something really beautiful about her anger and something that I could really, really connect to um, on that very visceral level. Whereas you're right with Electra, especially coming to it from a modern mindset, she's kind of fanatical and she's kind of driven by ideas about her family honour and religion and and she really wants to preserve the status quo so kind of getting her perspective was a little bit more difficult but in terms of her character she is so very much like her mother and I think that's why they clash so badly and they are just both so immovable and they're so fixed Mm. on this is the right thing to do that neither of them are aware of the consequences around them and that that dynamic between them and I don't think it's I mean it's obviously extreme but I think it's not an unusual mother-daughter dynamic to really great against the things that make you like your mother and really come up against that kind of that that barrier to understanding and so that felt that felt real and that felt like something that actually did make sense and I suppose that was the way into Electra's character and the way to unlocking her but she was definitely she definitely took a lot longer for me and the novel didn't Mm. start out being Electra it started out being Clytemnestra and then over the course of writing and rewriting Electra came more and more to the foreground and in the end it built so much towards her that that she ended up with the title spot hmm I was wondering about that too yeah because like I mean it's just it's interesting because of like her as a character um but she's she's so fascinating and I do think you're right like you can you can kind of get into her mind just purely from like everything around her and kind of how she gets there because it's so very much like you know, she she basically most of her knowledge of her family is of her mother. And so her father kind of lives in this like other world in her head of like sort of an invented person. Mm-hmm. And then so she loves him more and like fights against her mother because she's around her mother all the time. And I can feel I can see that in like teenagers generally. Right. Like it, it's like you you want to love the parent who's like this sort of like idea in your head versus the one that's in front of you you know yeah yeah definitely and I mean first of all the only way that anyone can love Agamemnon is if they don't know him so (laughs) there's like no (laughs) other way to find him in any way palatable and so she's got to invent him and that was that was one of the first because obviously like we've talked before about timelines and chronology and none of it making sense and so <laughs> the fun of that uh, <laughs> when it comes to Electra and um, she comes into the tragedies as a fully grown woman but I don't think as far as I can tell that we get a very clear sense of her age and certainly not how old mm. she was when um, Agamemnon went to war and for for her to actually have this obsession with him I thought well he must have gone when she was too small to have formed you know kind of a, a, a real judgment of the kind of person that he is um, and that allows her to then mythologize him. And then when he comes back, she's in her teenage years, which is a tricky time anyway. Um, and certainly for parental relationships. And so, yeah, that's she definitely made sense to me as um, as a really as a teenager, so very stuck in that that like that vision of like my life would be so much better if my father was here if he'd never gone away things were perfect once they could be again you know without any kind of real understanding of who he really is or what it would have been like if he'd stayed yeah that's exactly it and I think you're right about the age too because like Iphigenia is the oldest 
And she's killed when she's marriageable age, which is like, what, 14? Mm-hmm. Gross. Yep. <laughs> so it makes sense that Electra could be, you know, anywhere from like five to 10. Like, we only know that Orestes is a baby. And then otherwise, we kind of like have this sort of liminal space about how old anyone is. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I do love that you have Chrysothemis in it too, because she's often like not in the story at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I suppose I'm always so interested in sisterly relationships and it was, and to have kind of, obviously, if if is dead, um, but Chrysothemis, Chris, Chris I really struggle with her name. So I, I like make a guess. I don't even know, but it, just, it doesn't, it doesn't flow very easily. Um, so yeah. Um, but she's, when she's, when she's in the tragedies, she's kind of, you know, um, she sort of sympathizes a little bit with Electra, but she doesn't, she's not going to go as far as Electra. Um, so that seemed like something to kind of, um, to, yeah, to like delve into a bit like with Ariadne and Phaedra, the way that I thought they would probably react differently to the Minotaur, just this way that, you know, you can, you can have the same childhood experience, but for Chrysothemis, Chrysothemis, um, she, um, she's going to go down that more sort of traditional route, I suppose, of complying, of being obedient, of, of doing what she's told, however she feels about it. But Electra, she's so much Clytemnestra's daughter, she just can't do that. Yeah, that's so true. I hadn't really ever thought of them in that way, of of just like, I mean, the what makes them so different is that they are the same, and they each have these these things they have to hold on to at the cost of like anything else mm. and yeah oh, i just love these characters so much so, so just generally exciting um but also the curse so i'm just like i love I, the whole idea of of the curse you know on the house of atreus specifically because it's like it's the tantalid curse and then it's the curse of the pelopidae and then it's the atridae curse and you're like this family is <laughs> so cursed that their curse has three different names as it like rolls through the generations but then looking at the women involved is especially interesting because like technically speaking Electra is the only one like by blood in this curse but obviously the curse affects like Clytemnestra and Cassandra and so it's an interesting way to to look at it in that way and like obviously I'm pro just looking at everything from the lens of the women involved so like how do you feel about the curse like why was that kind of your thing I noticed it's in like all the copy and stuff too so just generally interested in the like the approach to the curse itself yeah I think that that really came from not actually from Greek mythology um I was partly inspired and definitely in terms of the curse and these ideas about how much of this is free will and how much of this is fate and I really went back to Macbeth for that um, and that is mm. the English teacher um, that I can never um, <laughs> get rid of from my psyche and it will always be a part of me because um, I just used to love teaching Macbeth I used to and you'd think with um, teenagers the age group I taught that like Romeo and Juliet would be the one because it's all about kind of teenage love and all the rest of it um, but it was Macbeth that used to grip them the most when, when we did Macbeth and it is just that idea of how much of your fate is inevitable and how much of it do you have a choice over and it's the way that um in in this in this um like like you said threefold curse in greek mythology you feel like there's a way out for each generation but each of them doesn't take it so they just make it worse and worse until it's so 
like just ingrained into their psyche um, that they will do these terrible things to one another. I mean, the fact that it starts with Tantalus just just deciding to save up his son to the gods <laughs> for, for fun. <laughs> yeah, seemingly to test them. Well, I don't know why they needed testing. No, and <laughs> that he would choose his own son for, for that as well. Yeah. It's so um, it's so twisted and. Um, I don't know, it feels like kind of a bit Game of Thrones, a bit Macbeth, all of these other like really sort of dark stories. And I I was just really wanted to weave all of that in and to really make it feel like this horrible claustrophobic intensity through the novel just pressing down as these characters think that they've seen their escape and they think that they're going to get out. But instead, they end up just getting sucked deeper and deeper in. I just think that's that's so irresistible yeah and and the way that it can suck in the people in the periphery Mm -hmm. you know like Agamemnon and Menelaus are obviously affected by it but that it can pull in you know this foreign woman foreign quote-unquote like Sparta's not that foreign but Mm -hmm. you know like like Clytemnestra getting yanked into it and and like even Cassandra getting yanked into it in her own way is so interesting like just the way that it could like bleed out beyond the the actual blood family members and and interesting what you're saying too like tantalus they you know after he does feeds his kid to the gods they go on to like in terms of like the greek mythology and the way it's referred to like they're constantly like oh yeah no tantalus did this worst thing like tantalus was awful even part of the family is like discussing you know this tantalid like what he did and how horrific it is and then i just love that they still get down to like atreus and it's like no but but like maybe we do feed somebody his kids <laughs> like maybe that comes back like maybe maybe that wasn't you know the worst possible thing imaginable and like let's look at it again let's <laughs> like, yeah. so revisit that for different reasons and this time i'm sure yeah. it will go swimmingly exactly like if we don't feed them to the gods then it's fine right (laughs) yeah completely just feed them to their own father instead um and the (laughs) fact that that pelops when you know he's saved he's brought back by the gods he gets his magical ivory shoulder and and all the rest of it but then he still turns out to be an absolute um like monster of a person anyway because you would kind of expect that he would that he would be the opposite to his father. And I, yeah. I guess it's kind of similar to Clytemnestra and Electra, that it just, mm. this blood will out. It just comes through in their characters. And somehow they just can't seem to stop themselves from doing this over and making the same mistakes over and over again. That's very human, I think. Um, it, even though it's so lurid and so fantastical, there's just that kind of truth of, of human beings that, you know, you, you know that this is probably a really bad course of action, but somehow you think that it's going to go okay this time or, or that you've got justification. And so often that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. Where it's like objectively, you know, these things to be true, but, but it's just, it's going to happen again because of something or another, or just like your own inability to comprehend that like, no, maybe, maybe your first thought of like, this is a bad idea is, is in fact, right. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I just find that whole, curse and like the questions surrounding it. basically everything you covered in this book like I just find it so fascinating to look at the ways in which each generation was affected by it and and like what 
happened because of it and anyway i love curses in greek mythology generally Mm. but this is the best curse in all of greek mythology it definitely is yeah it's definitely my favorite yeah it's just the most like wide-ranging and like just i mean long-standing obviously also i just like to be able to list all the three because they're just great words when you put them all together yeah that is also (laughs) very satisfying it just really is um so one person who's like such a sort of lightning rod i think is the word i would like to use um is helen Mm -hmm. obviously and she's kind of like on the periphery you know in everything which is sort of just like generally the notion of her character she's on the periphery everywhere but how did you like approach her did you have any like specific goals with how you wanted to handle helen like she's just such a she's such an interesting character for so many different reasons so i'm just curious generally about your your helen yeah i think i found her quite an intimidating character to come to write um mm-hmm. because she's you know she's she doesn't have i mean I, who who kind of really is she in greek mythology she's used for so many purposes um and i think that the one thing that i knew about her was that um she's she's the instigator she's the catalyst for this terrible war and that's so enraging and so nonsensical mm-hmm. the idea and i and i have a say in the novel that a thousand ships would sail for her that mm-hmm. this is a war about male ego it's a war about conquest and territory and wealth and power um but so handy um here we are we can blame it all on one woman who is just so beautiful that we hate her because we want her so much um so that was that was I knew that kind of that was my feeling about Helen but kind of working out who she would be and what would make her do whatever it is she does and we don't really know what she does there's you know did she does she go with Paris willingly is she abducted is she turned into a cloud and what is it spends 10 years in Egypt we don't know um so yeah um and again I think I thought well I want to try and see her a little bit more than through the prism of her female relationships because kind of seeing how she relates to all these men to Menelaus to Paris to Nasutas or whoever else um, isn't really helping me get an understanding of who she is. So I started with her and Clytemnestra back in Sparta and their childhood together and that strange sibling relationship they have where they're twins but Helen's been born um, from an egg because she's the daughter of Zeus whereas Clytemnestra is completely mortal and that kind of imbalance between them. And as Helen is the daughter of like not just a god but she's the daughter of Zeus, the sort of the, the the kind of the, the the sort of like the king of the gods you know um she's she must kind of feel that she has got something important to do with her life because all of the male sons of gods are going off and having adventures or quests or going to war and what is she going to do apart from be the most beautiful woman like just be a prize for these men um so that did make me think about her going to try and how she maybe she could have been tempted like why she would have been tempted maybe not really just by Paris but by the promise of something new and something exciting and some Mm -hmm. kind of destiny that she could get hold of um but she's so she's just so much the focus of other people's opinions all the time um that 
I did I did want to give her some little moments where she is just herself so like where she interacts with Cassandra in Troy because they're both in these kind of different but quite similar situations because they're both outcasts within that city neither of them are fully accepted for these very different reasons and both of them are kind of viewed as being the harbingers of disaster so I definitely thought there'd be a connection between them I think while I was writing, I just felt, and I think you'll always feel like this with Greek mythology, like there's about six different novels that you could write just under the surface. <laughs> and I was like, uh-huh. oh my God, a Helen and Cassandra novel would be great. Bring Andromache in, like write all of their stories. And there's just there's just not room in one book. But um, yeah, so I, I did as much with her as, as there was space while kind of honouring those other characters whose stories I just thought needed to be heard this time. Mm-hmm. I did love that moment like Clytemnestra is kind of thinking about her and is like did she go willingly or did she not you know and I think that that's it's like a question that I mean even just the way you you phrased it there like that's one thing I find out about Helen to be so interesting is that I can see either side mm-hmm. even from a standpoint of like wanting to give her agency in both cases like you know, she, like, I, she could have loved either of them. Like, we just know so little that I think you can have a sympathetic and understanding, understandable, like, idea of Helen while also, like, looking at both of these options. And, like, both you can get. And neither, neither really make her the bad guy because she just overall is not the bad guy. Like, these men went to war because of their own fragile egos. Mm-hmm. They didn't go to war over Helen. Like, that's not actually how it works. And so I do like the idea that that you can see her going with Paris out of love or out of desire to, to have a different experience, to have something bigger and better. And like, and even that still, you can look at that option and still be like, it still wasn't on her. Like, it's still all about the men and their egos. Like, it... it the idea of her her blame in this in that story has always fascinated me so much because it's just I mean it's so just based in misogyny 100% and like the patriarch and this idea that like yeah sure one woman caused a whole war that only involved men fighting that that checks out yeah, yeah definitely like a 10 year siege was a completely proportionate reaction to her leaving her husband yeah. um yeah Absolutely. But I think like one of the first books that I ever read about Greek mythology when I was younger was The Tale of Troy by Roger Lansell and Green. I don't know if you ever read that. It's like a mm. children's book. Mm-mm. Um and it was the it was my first introduction to the Trojan War. And in it, Helen is a completely innocent character. It's Aphrodite has charmed her and she doesn't know what's happening. And then suddenly she's in Troy with Paris and she spends the whole time crying for her daughter that she's left behind and Menelaus, who she really loves. So I think it was um ingrained in me oh Helen is a sympathetic character I came across that representation of her before any other so I think I would always have that kind of yeah it definitely wasn't Helen's fault kind of in that book he also mentions that Theseus is awful so I mean I'll I'll recommend that (laughs) book to any children yeah that sounds great especially for a kid's book of Greek mythology like it is it's a rare feat I think (laughs) to have Theseus called out in something like that. That's great. Um, I recently, and and you kind of already alluded to it, but I recently recorded a a conversation episode. I'm not sure if it'll come out before or after this, but regardless, I'm going to bring it up. But about the idea of Helen as the Eidolon, like this weird version of her that actually is off in Egypt this whole time. And there's this like 
false like cloud Helen in Troy doing everything. That's just so fascinating to me. Like, did you have any thoughts about doing anything with that? I mean, it, it sounds like it'd be so deeply complicated, but <laughs> I'm just so curious about your thoughts on that version of her. No, all I did was I put in a tiny Easter egg where when Cassandra sees her, she says she's so beautiful. She looks as though she could have been sculpted from a cloud. And I just threw oh! that in as a reference. Um, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I found it um, not the place, I think, to actually make her a cloud and go into all of that. Yeah. Um, but I'll be so interested to listen to that conversation. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And just uh, now I want to do like a whole like accompanying episode on that idea of her because it's so weird and unique for Greek mythology, this idea of like a false version of someone. And it feels like it would only happen with Helen, you know, like only someone that controversial for no good reason, like (laughs) would get that treatment. Yeah, somebody so impenetrable that maybe she wasn't there at all. Yeah. And just so like it's all down to her so how can we make it you know not I don't know it's it's fascinating Mm. idea just this like version of her this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. 
the, this whole story is like so complex and there's so many different versions. I think the most interesting thing for me, and I'm sure you encounter this with Ariadne too, is the stories where, um, where there's like these mythical versions and then there's these tragedy versions because it, like so often we have to link our, our ideas of Greek mythology on Greek tragedy, because that's where we get a lot of things where other sources are lost. But also the thing I always come back to is that like Greek tragedy was a, a performance. It was like a piece of, of like art. It was reception in itself. Like, so we, you know, it's easy to also then look at it and be like, well, grain of salt, like what did the playwright want to change for his own, story his own drama like the idea of like what we change in a movie adaptation versus the original story and things like that so did you have like preferences in terms of what you wanted to refer to or like I mean just basically like what are your thoughts on that in general because it's fascinating I love Greek tragedy so yeah. <laughs> now I'm rambling no, definitely and <laughs> um, yeah I went all over with it so I kind of I, I do feel like the most defining version that we've got of, of the main story is Aeschylus's Aristeia and mm -hmm. that was definitely where I started but well, Clytemnestra is so compelling in that version but Electra kind of is is not particularly she's she's she doesn't there's not very much about her really particularly in the is it, is it the libation bearers I, I get confused every time yeah. oh my god <laughs> yeah libation I know I mix them up too because you have the some people call them the Greek and libation bearers is the middle yeah, one that, yeah um yeah yeah so in that she's kind of she's just I mean she's there and she does she follows the same story um as with Sophocles and Euripides but obviously Sophocles and Euripides called their play their tragedies Electra and there is so much more of her in them so I was kind of I was skipping back and forth between the tragedies kind of like taking Clytemnestra from Aeschylus taking the idea of the beacons lighting which I love so much but also doesn't mm. make any sense because it, it makes it feel as though they get back from Troy in the space of one night so I really wanted really wanted the beacons in there but I had to find a way to make that make sense which was tricky I wonder if they could have had beacons too like now I'm just thinking about distances and things and like I don't know if that would have worked sorry I had not thought about that before but now I'm fascinated by the idea of like whether they could actually have had that from like Turkey to Argos yeah there's there's a lot of sea in between mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so exactly and like some islands but the islands are not close enough to each other hmm. anyway sorry that was a yeah the beacons don't work on many levels but I still really wanted to include them because I oh love no them. of course uh, yeah <laughs> I think they're great I just more went to like what it technically speaking but no they're a perfect plot device like, yeah absolutely and I don't well, could they have had them on stage in the tragedy could they've had like burning torches Probably, yeah, you're right. That would have yeah, amazing. so if you think about it in that respect, it would have and would have been like a gorgeous thing and an easy one. And they had pretty high tech, less so with Aeschylus, I imagine. But they would have performed those later with uh, with the tech. But like, I just always think back to the the crane and stuff they had. Yeah. Like they did a lot with their stage work. Mm. So cool. Yeah, that was yeah. That's that's gonna like take us down a rabbit hole of like. Why can't I we do time travel? <laughs> <Great tragedy. laughs> oh my god! If you don't think I think about that like every single day, oh my god! <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, um, so I was yeah, so I was back and forth between Sophocles, Euripides, Aeschylus until I got really confused um, with where I was, and um, yeah, I, well, not so much confused with where I was, but kind of when I'm looking back and trying to unpick and work out well which bit came from where because um, 
with with researching all these different sources I guess I find it all and then I have to turn it into something of my own and then it's it's so difficult to then go back and kind of try and unpick where it all all came from um mm-hmm. and then obviously there's so much from the from the Iliad and then from the Odyssey as well and then I, I couldn't write a book without Ovid showing showing up somewhere <gasps> no one should <laughs> ever um so um but I do think with this story more so than with Ariadne the versions do mesh a lot more smoothly um Mm-hmm. I think with Ariadne there was so much that was contradictory and there were and it felt like there were versions from kind of so much um kind of so much longer before the the Theseus mm-hmm. story and um, that I was trying to smush it all together <laughs> I'll take that word again um and yeah and it was it was a lot harder to make those pieces fit whereas whereas when it comes to Electra, Clytemnestra and Cassandra there is a lot more that I think seems to agree when it comes to them um, between the tragedies and between the poetry and, and the epics. There, there's obviously, there's character differences. And I think especially with Electra, she varies quite a lot. So she's, she's like, she's very bloodthirsty in Sophocles. She's a little bit more conflicted in Euripides. There's kind of, there's definitely more, more depth to her character. Um, and I don't know which order those two would have come in but um no that's interesting yeah I think Euripides really kind of brought out more to her and that was that was really useful to me but whenever you come to Electra there's still this huge gap in her life there's just all of that time that went before you by the time you meet her in any version that I could find she's already grown up and she's already got this really fixed hatred and there's nothing no kind of explanation of uh, in the ancient sources that I could find of where that came from and how that developed that's so true like I hadn't really thought about it until you started saying all of that but yeah like uh, there really are it, it really is almost entirely just the plays in this case because the Iliad doesn't really touch upon much of like the family obviously because they're back home and and like yeah you get the representation in the odyssey which is so interesting but it's all about Clytemnestra and yeah so I guess we just have these like I mean luckily we it's the only story that has been covered by all three of the tragedians so it gets these like extra levels um but I I would be uh, wrong to not now add or more like not I would not be my own personality to not now add that in university so I took um my one like Greek drama class, which was the best and I had the greatest prof, but he decided that like the way we were going to study the plays was that actually the only plays we were going to study were the three different tragedians takes on that story. So we just spent an entire semester only studying like the, you know, I think we went Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Mm -hmm. because I think yeah, timelines that makes most sense. And so it was so fascinating to look at how they did it differently because like, you're right, Euripides' is Electra is, I think she's much more sympathetic. She's really interesting. And, but also Euripides is Orestes is bizarre. Like the play called Orestes is like this oh. wild ride of weird. I actually played Electra in a radio play version oh, wow. of that. It was great. <laughs> we got extra credit for it and everything. All we did was like, sit in a room with like six of us and just record this play nonstop. It was very fun. Very cool. <laughs> but I need to reread these plays. It, it's been so long 
I don't even know if I fully like I I forget how I covered them in the podcast because it's been like four years since I did it. And now like all I want to do is reread all the the different takes on them, particularly because I love Euripides so Mm -hmm. much. But yeah, it's it's just fascinating the way they each have this story. So you get this like added depth of understanding and looking at how each of them handled it and like. I mean, Aeschylus is obviously the oldest. He's like sort of the most like staid and you get a great story out of him, but you get better characters, I think, out of Sophocles and Euripides. Yeah. And there's a kind of that moment where Euripides like makes fun of the Aeschylus recognition scene or something. And he's like, well, because I mean, it is obviously it does. There's I mean, there's the beacons and then there's that. There are some definitely some plot holes. When it comes to Aeschylus <laughs> and he says, you know, well, how could a lecturer possibly recognize Orestes from a lock of hair? People have got Oh, similar yeah. hair. I was gonna ask what it was. Um, yeah, it's a lock of hair and the and um the, the footprint, I think. Um that her her mm. foot fits in the same footprint. And I mean oh, that sure. would because that's always true of brothers and sisters. Um Absolutely. So I do really like that you have that little that that, that reception of each other, that referencing of each other is so so yeah. much fun. Yeah, well, I mean, I just like to think about all those different things, like, because Aeschylus was, like, almost 100 years, I think, before Euripides, Mm. and he was so famous. So, yeah, like, everyone would have been, like, comparing or, yeah, like, criticizing or various things like that. So, I the intricacies of Greek tragedy. Truly, I could spend hours talking about it, but uh, (laughs) we won't turn this into that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, I'm interested um, in how much you did or did not want to involve the Trojan War because obviously like that's the most important and like did you uh, maybe this also connects with like why you wanted to feature Cassandra you know in this story and and sort of like what yeah I mean talk about that yeah <laughs> definitely um so I think if you you know if you're interested in Greek mythology the Trojan War is just going to be something that you are always going to want to return to and um, it's just there is there's so much in it um to to love and to explore and and so I knew that I wanted the Trojan War in a novel um and I was trying to think well how can I do this that is not going to feel like um it's just kind of rehashing what other people have done um because you I wanted to you know to put my own slant on it do something new um so seeing it from the inside of Troy was the main thing um that I didn't want to be out on the Greek beaches kind of seeing Achilles and Agamemnon um again because that's been done so brilliantly you know I've read the science of the girls I've read a thousand ships I've read the song of Achilles and they are all amazing and I'm not gonna you know try to do that again it doesn't need doing um so going to try inside Troy was the first thing that really interested me because I felt like I hadn't seen that so much um Mm -hmm. and I wanted to know what it was like to be in that city I was writing during lockdowns because this was 2020 Mm. um and this idea of being under siege felt very timely very relevant and the kind of feeling that anxiety and again I'm going to use that word claustrophobia again because that's really the pervading feeling of the novel um really uh, really chimed and felt like something that was a way of kind of I guess like writing about the pandemic even without writing about the pandemic because I'm 3,000 years ago and this is a totally different (laughs) scenario and it's a a way of escaping but also channeling quite a lot of those anxieties and fears as well um 
and Cassandra has just always been a, a huge favourite of mine. I think she will be for so many people who are interested in this area because she's just, her plight, her situation is so, oh, it speaks to you on so many levels. Um, the way that she is a woman who is never heard and never believed. I mean, first of all, that's something. <laughs> is she always? <laughs> Yeah, quite possibly. Um, you know, um, so she's, um, and I think like in, in a lot of versions, her brother is believed, isn't he? He's also a prophet. And so, you know. Mm, right. Yeah. So there's something to uh, to chew over as well. Though I didn't, I didn't include him in. I just kept it as her um, for, you know, keeping it focused and kind of giving the spotlight to the people who deserve it. Um, yeah, you can't add too much in Greek mythology. It becomes a little messy, like as if the original works aren't aren't messy enough. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I don't want to have to put in a load of footnotes and have people like rushing off to an encyclopedia um, every five minutes. So, um, yeah. So Cassandra, the, the fact that she can see what is going to happen to Troy, she can see how her city is going to be devastated. She knows it's coming and shout as loud as she might nobody will pay any attention to her it's just so maddening and so fascinating and so just just amazing to to get into that that mindset and how what it would be like how it would actually begin to drive you mad that everybody believes that you are mad um Mm -hmm. she's um she's just incredible and she's so tragic as well um but she has these moments of of defiance where she's still trying to save Troy even though why doesn't she just run away nobody there will give her the respect that she deserves but it's her home it's her city it's where she belongs and where she feels that you know what kinship that that you know she she still loves her family and she still loves her city however badly they've treated her and she's still going to do everything she can um even though she knows it's doomed to failure, it's just, it's so painful. Um, But it just, it made me just feel that she's somebody, well, I finally want to hear her voice and and believe her story. So, and as well as that, there was kind of just the practicality of, this is a story about Electra and Clytemnestra, and Clytemnestra is spending 10 years planning her revenge, which is great it doesn't make for a very interesting novel if it's like <laughs> day 42 still planning how to kill Agamemnon <laughs> um all the way up to 10 years um so yeah so to actually take the action to try and to see see it happening um though it is difficult to write a character who can see the future and um create a sense of suspense as well um because Mm -hmm. if she knows what's going to happen how how are you going to make it exciting so the fact that she's kind of she's an unreliable narrator in the way that these visions hit her because you know Apollo is not going to give her like a detailed bullet-pointed breakdown of like this is going to happen when and where and how it's going to be this 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 these kind of fits these frenzied moments for her where she sees it coming yeah it's true I mean yeah we've learned anything from the oracle like apollo doesn't speak clearly no. he's not gonna make it easy for you um but yeah that, that's cassandra is so interesting and i think it, from like even the start in the book she she fits this great role too of you know like the aside from the fact that she's this fascinating character 
who I think, yeah, does deserve a, more of a voice. But also, she's kind of there for it all. And there's not, like, a lot of details about her in the myths. Like, there's very little. I did an episode on her, and it, it was hard to tease everything out. Mm. But what she is is that she does kind of serve as this, like, this sort of fixed point in in much of Troy's story, even, you know, from the very beginning of, like, what's going to happen with Paris. And I think that it adds so much that you get to have this character who who links up then with with Clytemnestra and Electra in that very, you know, important way, but also serves to give you this, like, inside access to all of Troy and everything that happened there. So she is, she kind of seems to serve, like, a very perfect plot device of like you're saying not having just the entire book be about Clytemnestra like slowly plotting her revenge but also being able to look at the war itself through this character who is there and interacting with Helen and getting all these different insights she just kind of is is perfect for all of that yeah and because she's not involved she's always this sort of outcast character she's always got mm-hmm. that that deta- that separation from everybody else and um, her vision isn't clouded in that way you know she's not she's not like one of the other characters who's really got um like the skin in the game and so much involvement because Mm -hmm. she's not a part of anything she's separate all the time so she can see it and she can relay it and when Patroclus is killed she knows she in Troy she knows that's not Achilles inside that armor um so it was like a, a good way to be able to describe that scene happening as well um that without it being really confusing because everybody else in Troy thinks they're seeing Achilles die, that she's got this this superior knowledge. So she's the person that I can turn to yeah. for that, for the for what's happening there. And then she um really serves a purpose to bring out something else about Clytemnestra's character when she's brought home as a captive. Because mm-hmm. this is something and I I think this came from Ovid, but it's certainly something I remember being told when I studied um, the plays back in college, um, when I was like 17, 18, which is that when Agamemnon brings Cassandra home, Clytemnestra is just consumed with this terrible sexual jealousy. And I just thought, even huh. as, eight, as an 18 year old, I kind of thought, this this does not ring true of Clytemnestra. She hates Agamemnon. And yeah. when she suddenly <laughs> jealous he's got this concubine which is the worst word ever but yeah exactly there's, there's nothing that she's going to feel for Cassandra in that moment beyond pity that she's that she yeah. is the property of this man that Clytemnestra knows is a monster and absolutely despises and um, I mean there's maybe like an element of kind of disrespect in front of everybody he's you know he's he's showing off his his prize um, in front of his and his wife yeah. is that but I just I just it's not jealousy and I um that scene was just so so crucial to me in drawing something else out of Clytemnestra and, and Clytemnestra I think she deserves so much more than she's gotten in so many stories so I'm yeah I'm thrilled with the way you've handled her because she just deserves so much I find her so interesting and like you know she just gets written off as this murderer and like Sure, she is. But we can see why. Like, it doesn't make it okay, but we can see where she's coming from. Like, between her and Medea, I just, I I love the way that, you know, even though they existed in this, like, deeply patriarchal mess of a world, and even though, like, all of their stories are in that, you can still tease out, like, what you did is not okay. I don't know why I keep having to say, like, obviously murder is bad. But, like, but you can still see 
how they got there. You can sympathize. You can like really feel it. And I think it just makes Clytemnestra so much more real. And and yeah, you're right. Like there's no way she was jealous. And I, I don't want to hear a version where she's jealous. Like she, if anything, you're right. Like there could be disrespect. You know, she could just be like, well, this adds insult to injury. Like he brought home a woman after all, you know, on top of that. But yeah, she's, she's certainly not feeling jealous of Cassandra. She's literally about to kill Agamemnon in this moment. And I also love that you made it Clytemnestra who does kill him. Because one, it was not always a geese this. And I don't want it to be a geese this. I want it to be Clytemnestra. Like she didn't make him do her dirty work. He's just kind of this there is like, there's this like supportive. I find him like this just supportive side <laughs> character of like, yeah, he's there for moral support. But like the decisions are on Clytemnestra. And I think I think that that really like adds something to the whole thing. Yeah, and I think that's the best moment in Aeschylus when she comes out and she talks about killing him, and she says it's like this: this the rain, spring rains, revitalizing the crops. That's what the spray of his blood was oh. like. Oh my god, that's the best <laughs> line I've ever. Heard. I need to reread these. Oh man, it's been too long. <laughs> um, I just, I think that is that just goes that that goes right to the heart of Clytemnestra and there's there's absolutely no way that she would hand that that moment to anyone and certainly not another man mm-hmm. that is entirely her moment her becoming everything that she has been waiting for and um and it really yeah. pays off yeah I, and sort of this just it's sort of a departure but just made me think of it I also really enjoyed the way you handled the like Clytemnestra versus her children thing. I think there was a line that was just like, I hope this makes them, gives them peace or something where it's like they, you know, she also comes around to understand why her fate then has to happen. And, and it's just sort of, I mean, she, this is sort of her character, you know, in all the, the versions I think is that she just needed, she needed to avenge Iphigenia and after that, it didn't really matter what happened to her. Like, it was just, she was consumed by it. That is what mattered. And, like, whatever came after, it is what it is. But she'd gotten that, that like, feeling of righteousness against Agamemnon for what he did. Yeah, completely. And because there is such a big contradiction in her character that she's, everything she does is because she loves her daughter so much. But then at the same time, she has this terrible relationship with her three surviving children. So that was something to really um, to really kind of tackle in her character and how that distance between them grew and became so unbridgeable, that gulf. And but then ultimately, she loves all of her children. And I, and yeah. I, I just I don't think that you could have. Clytemnestra not because that is that's her motivating force how much she how much she loved Iphicanaia she is not going to not feel that for her other children as well no exactly she's just too overcome by what she feels about Iphicanaia to like you know have a good relationship with them but at the same time like of course you know like you're saying it that is her whole motivation so she she clearly still loves them in the end even if you know everything is tragedy in that story yeah yeah it is um but but the the trauma that she went through and the the idea that you would take your daughter to be married and her own father oh it's yeah like that story is just it's just so much like I you know somehow it feels recent but it was already like six months ago now but I covered the play the Iphigenia at Alice and 
it's just, yeah, it's such a moment. And I think, you know, I think it's so important to be handled as what it is. And I think that's exactly what you did of it's like the most tragic thing in the world. It's horrific. Like you literally are so excited. You think your eldest daughter is getting married. It's a good match. It's so it's like life things being fulfilled. And then it, then it just turns in the most horrific of ways. And like, how, how do you deal with that as a human? And like, how does that change you forever? Yeah, it is. It is this defining moment in her life. Yeah, it is. I think it's so important that it is the defining moment for her that it is. So that, yeah, it, it just, it's all so much, but I think, yeah, I think, I think you handled it all so beautifully. And I think it's just such an important, it's such an important story to look at it this way. And I just love these people so much. So then I ran out of uh, smart things to say about it. <laughs> but I am so curious. Um, this just came up while we were talking. But like, did you learn anything in your research, in your writing that kind of really was just particularly exciting or kind of blew your mind or anything like that? Well, it's well, it's kind of it's like it's not something that I learned. It was something that I had to had to fill in. It was just this idea about mm. um Electra's marriage and who and mm. um so in the Euripides where it's just he's just an unnamed peasant I think that's uh, he doesn't huh. he, he doesn't get any any more than that um but he's like really virtuous and um he marries Electra but it's like a sham marriage he does it so Aegisthus has, has ordered it because if she has children mm. with a peasant they will be inferior children and they won't grow up to avenge him. So it's his way out of the curse because obviously he doesn't huh. want, you know, Electra's children to grow up and kill him. And, and they won't if they're, if they're commoners, obviously. Huh. So I wanted to work him into the story. Um, but I, to it, it also gave me a chance to see Electra through some slightly more sympathetic eyes if she has got somebody in her life who cares about her enough to do that for her and so I worked him in a lot earlier and there's there's a lot of invention there but that's because Electra's life up until then is such a, is such a void it's such a blank um so I did um I did want to give her a friend yeah yeah I noticed that too and I I hadn't thought of like the original sourcing on it I think what was probably good about going into it was that it has been a long time since I've covered these stories like other than Iphigenia at Alice it's been like it's been a while. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's great. And I think the, the fact that you got to invent so much about Electra's life in that in-between or just like her as a character too. Like I think she's probably like a a pretty ideal source to work off of or not source, but character because, you know, she, she has a lot fleshed out, but there's still a lot that can be left to the imagination too. Probably less so with Clytemnestra. Oh, no, definitely. Because I think with yeah. Clytemnestra, as we've just said, we know exactly what drives her to that point of hatred and that point of revenge. And we can feel it and we can sympathise with it and we can totally understand it. Um, but with Electra, um, the idea that she would get to that point I mean, there are just some steps to fill in along the way. And it she can't start out like that. She's not born with that kind of rage and that kind of hatred. Um, so it's something that has to develop and has to evolve. And to kind of figure out how that would happen throughout the course of her life, that was definitely um, something, something to work with. Mm -hmm. Well, then simultaneously, too, you had to make her 
like at least mostly likable or or like you had to like you know you don't want the reader to also just hate her the whole time or think that she's wrong and stuff so I bet it was quite a tightrope of like figuring out how to handle Electra yeah in that way. and I, and I hope that readers will find something to like about her because her because it's definitely not her actions that you're going to like mm-hmm. you are not yeah. <laughs> at any point going to be the way that whereas with Clytemnestra um really whatever your moral standpoint on murder is you are cheering her on at that moment in her story because um if anyone ever had it coming it's Agamemnon um and at her hands but with Electra it is a completely different situation and I think that I don't think any reader is is going to be oh I'd be slightly worried if they are completely sympathetic to Electra (laughs) um but yeah I really hope because I grew to like her and to care about her during the writing process um even while being frustrated by how deluded she is and how misguided she is um I could feel like I knew where she was coming from so I yeah I really hope that the reader does as well yeah I've always really liked her too so that might have influenced her as well (laughs) but I, I I just like her as a character who I suppose it's mostly that like she's a woman in Greek myth who has a lot to say and that's rare. Yeah. <laughs> so I've liked her. <laughs> exactly. And she's she's got she's got agency. She's um she's mm-hmm. she's decided what she wants and she's she's gonna do it. Yeah, even if what she wants is not what we would like. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, this really has been so much fun. I'm so excited that we got to have this conversation. I think it, for me, like I loved Ariadne and I love the myth of Ariadne, but like, this is my story in a much more like visceral way in a way where I'm like, I could talk about it so much forever. So I'm thrilled with, with like, I mean, just the book and you, and this is so much fun. Thank you so much. I was so excited about talking to you about this. I'm, I'm really excited about the novel. Um, and I'm just, I'm so glad that, that you are too. Absolutely. I mean, Greek mythology novels all the time. Like, I'm just so thrilled with how many are coming out. And I'm, I'm kind of glad I have this. I have you as like a, a, an author who I've had on before, because I get really intimidated talking to authors or like, I get the issue of like, I want this to be a conversation, but it, it usually needs to be an interview. So I'm very glad we had our background too of we can just chat about this yeah. because it makes it so much easier for me as a person who doesn't want to be an interviewer. I just want to have conversations <laughs> with people. Yeah, no, I think it's it's much yeah. it's much nicer, and it's I I just I love to talk to you because we get to talk about all the all the like nitty gritty of the myths and the characters, and it just it it's so much. It's just it's so it's so interesting to be able to go into that kind of depth and that kind of detail. So I love it. That's exactly it. Like I'm just thrilled. I have somebody now who's like, well, I have all of this knowledge living in my head about these people and now I can just throw it all at you. And you had all the answers. It's so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also will say and give myself a little bit of like, Ooh, this was very fun credit, but I did read the acknowledgements. So thank you. (laughs) Oh, you're so welcome. Um, Yeah. I just, um, I, it, it was, it was just amazing like having your support with Ariadne and the fact that you had me on the podcast twice um and I think that you were the first interview that I did um when yeah yeah when I came on <laughs> I remember. to talk about Phaedra and and it was so nice and I remember like I finished that and I was like this is fine I can do interviews um because um you just you're so easy to talk to and um oh. getting to be on a show that I loved was obviously like a bit of a dream come true so thank you 
Thank you. I'm still like, I, I'm, I'm still anxious in my interview. So I'm, I'm still glad to hear that too myself, even though I talk to people all the time. Uh, but yeah, it was a thrill. I, um, I screenshotted it and sent it to Jen and Jenny this morning. Just being like, oh, and they were like, yeah, we know. I was like, well, you should have sent it to me if you've already seen it. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Is say, same with Sorry, them. It's just, yeah, it was, you, you were all my lockdown companions, your podcasts. <laughs> I'm so glad. It's very fun. I mean, I yeah, I love knowing that that anyone writing mythological work at all are listening to me. So it's an it's an added thrill, absolutely. So really, again, thank you so much. Um, why don't you? I realize we've I've just kept referencing the book, but we haven't actually talked about like when people can get it. I will put everything in the episode's description, and I will provide like a bit of an introduction as I always do. Um, but do you want to tell listeners a little bit more about? how and when they can get it and anything else you want to share about the book or you yeah so it is out on the 28th of april in the uk and then it will be out in the 3rd of may um in north america um oh so close that's yeah it. <laughs> and i hate having to wait yeah um, in hardback audio audio ebook um however people want to get their books and it's available wherever you get your books so please get it perfect yeah <laughs> Uh, oh, did you want to uh, anyone to follow you at any places as well? Any social media you want to share? Um, yes, of course. So I'm on Instagram, um, jennifer.saint.author, and I'm on Twitter, Jenny Saint. Wonderful. And I will add all of that into the episode so people can find you. So generally, just thank you again so much for doing yeah, this. Well, thank you so much for, for letting me. <laughs> Oh, nerds, as always, thank you so much for listening. I am so thrilled with how many mythological retellings there are these days. So many interesting ways of looking at this these ancient and timeless characters <sighs> bring on the novelizations. Still, I particularly love when those authors become friends of the show. It was such a joy chatting with Jenny again, not least because I get to openly just turn it into a conversation rather than an interview because I fear the pressure of formal interviews, but also because I get the chance to pick authors' brains about turning myths into novels. It's such a fascinating thing and such a like unique way of going about these myths. I'm often so deep in the myths themselves that I can't imagine fictionalizing something. So it's something that's just so interesting to me. Plus, I get the joy of just speaking with someone else who's like somehow even deeper into this myth than I am in my daily life. That's a thrill. It's rare. <laughs> and now all I want to do is reread the different plays that feature this story. I will absolutely cover it again one day. I didn't remotely do it justice all those years ago. I barely even compared the place. Can you imagine the nerdery that will be involved when I do it again with my obsession with variations and looking at how each of the playwrights handled different things? Oh my god, it's gonna be a lot. It might be obnoxious, but also fun. But I'm getting ahead of myself because honestly, I have so much planned for the future of this show, so many plays I haven't even remotely touched yet. And now I'm rambling. So thank you to Jennifer Saint for coming on the show. So much fun. And make sure that you, listener, grab a copy of Electra. You will find links to Jenny's social media and beyond in the episode's description. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith handles so many things. Gods, just everything at this point. She's wonderful. We have an intern this month. Isn't that cool? First intern ever. Grace Roby is helping out with gods. 
so many things. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you. You are all the best. What a cool job I have. I am Liv and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.